Welcome to Dem Talks, our stories, our voices, created by the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, a carer advocacy group supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. I'm your host, Judy Williams, and when I'm not podcasting, I'm an advocacy engagement and participation officer at the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, and I look after the Dementia Carers Campaign Network, known as the DCCN. The topic of our episode today is post-diagnostic supports and sourcing appropriate services. And I'm delighted to welcome Ashling Harmon, a committee member of the Dementia Carers Campaign Network who cared for both her parents, Mike Hanrahan, songwriter, musician, author and Atlantic Fellow for Equity and Brain Health at Trinity College Dublin, and Kathleen Farrell, who is living with Lewy Body Dementia and who is a member of the Irish Dementia Working Group, an advocacy group for people living with dementia, supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. You're all very welcome today. And I'm going to come to you first, Ashling. You cared for both your mum and dad who were living with dementia. And we know that your beloved mum passed away in February this year. I had the pleasure of meeting your lovely mother, but I never met your father. Mm. Would you tell us a little bit about your parents? Yeah, I'd be delighted to. Um, my folks were both born in the country and moved up to Dublin in their childhood. They had many other things in common later on when they would come to meet up. They were introduced through their school friends. They lived a few streets apart. Um, they both had a huge love of music and particularly classical music, which wasn't very typical for their vintage, actually. And later on, after they married and had us, they would often travel abroad, take the car, have car will travel and go to um, concerts abroad and attend the opera and attend Wagner recitals, which was my dad's absolute favourite, not everybody's cup of tea. Um, they were hugely warm and loving parents. They were big softies for animals and had endless patience with us for the, the, the zoo that we had at home between uh, gerbils and guinea pigs and uh, hamsters. And uh, we had dogs, we had cats, we used to attend shows with them. Um, they had endless patience. There was always uh, an open seat at the table for anybody who dropped by unexpectedly for a cup of coffee and a chat or for a meal. Everybody was welcome. Um, my dad was a wonderful sportsman. He really advocated that you looked after your body as well as your mind. And he was a champion um, sprinter and hurdler. One of his uh, records still holds today for Ireland. Um, my mum was an amazingly talented artist and teacher. Um, she taught us uh, to enjoy life and to live life and explore what what turn what makes life happy for you and what gives you joy. Um, and I feel that throughout the whole of her life, she was still teaching us as she went on. She was a remarkable lady. She also helped to look after both of her parents. She went back to teaching after we were in school. Um, and again, half car will travel. We'd be picked up after school and we'd be off to visit granny and granddad or do somebody shopping, etc., or help out in community. She was a remarkable lady. She um, survived leukaemia uh, from 2002 and um, she uh, still uh, lobbied with the Irish Country Women's Association. She, in fact, was Dublin president for a while. And she also lobbied the Department of Health for the breast check. And their slogan they developed was, our breasts are in your hand, Minister. So she was quite a colourful lady. They also, sadly, in common, had the fact that they developed um, dementia. They each developed dementia, but their paths were very different and their coping mechanisms and strategies were different. My father 
hid his diagnosis for a very long time, which must have been a really tough time for him going through that, protecting his, what he thought was protecting his family. Um, after his diagnosis was confirmed and was made public, he had a vascular dementia and then subsequently Alzheimer's. He battled it very, very hard. He never accepted his diagnosis. Um, and he still avidly tried to play chess when he could. And he, even when he transferred ultimately into residential care, he uh, had his chess boards on the go. That was still an interest to keep connection. But he battled it very, very hard, which was sad because it, it altered how we could support and, and help care for him and encourage him. Uh, my mom, on the other hand, she had uh, survived leukemia and then she went on to develop Parkinson's um, in 2013. And she had a, a 10 year journey with Parkinson's. Her dementia kicked in in 2019. And she was very willing, very accepting. And just I think she had no energy to fight at that stage. She had done so much caring and support for everybody else over the years. And she was just resigned to making the best of it. Lovely. Thank you so much, Ashling, for sharing all that. And you paint a really lovely picture of your parents. So, Ashling, when we look at post-diagnostic supports for a person with dementia, we want to improve their lives. But good post-diagnostic supports can also support the whole family. What do you think supported your family and which supports made a difference to you or were there gaps and where were the gaps? Sure. Um, there's quite a lot in that question. So I'll take the, the the positives first, the supports that were there. I suppose my training as, as an osteopath, I had a good medical and clinical knowledge that was hugely supportive to me and to the rest of the family to understand and be able to anticipate what was involved in a diagnostic process and to do a little research and see what are the typical treatment approaches, prescribing approaches is what's the pathway, how no two cases are the same, what to expect, what not to expect. Uh, and I could also support my mum through that as she was caring for my father um, at, that, at that time. Um, also, having had the prior experience of helping her to support my dad, that really helped me on my carer journey to help support her. And again, her case was really very different. In her early days, it was all about her Parkinson's disease and then later on the overlay of dementia. Um, so I had that prior experience. Um, also, it helps you appreciate just how much you do on your caring journey and maybe you don't appreciate how much you actually deliver and your productivity as a carer on behalf of your loved one. Um, so having had that prior knowledge um, really supported me. Um, but that was quite specific to our family. It wouldn't be the case for everybody. And the other thing, mum and I had a bit of a good cop and a bad cop strategy that we would engage. She was very genteel, polite lady. I can be a bit more assertive as you might have established. I'm not afraid. To, I'm not backwards about coming forwards um, so we would use a strategy whereby she'd go in and, and maybe request something and say would it be possible maybe to get a few extra home care hours and I knew from the lie of the land that that was a, a very tough request to get across the line so it gave me liberty to say well actually we having established with you that Carmel wishes to stay at home for the duration of her um, uh, treatment and care um, we require an intensive care package and will you please provide a letter to support us with that so that strategy helped us to get a direct response, yay or nay, sometimes, or that's possible or it's not. And it also meant we got the most out of our time in medical consultations or when we were meeting varieties of medical supports for our for our care team. With respect to the negatives, um, 
It was tough. Dad was diagnosed, you know, uh, in the early 2000s, formally diagnosed, having had a long time in in limbo prior to that. And public funding was really at an all time low. Um, So it was very difficult to easily access community supports. Um, From mum's dementia journey, uh, coming a good deal later, um, the biggest problem we found over the years was just the resourcing. Roles are, are designed, they're put in place, but they're not filled yet. Or somebody has left and the role hasn't been, uh, somebody else hasn't come in. There's no locum or alternative cover. So that was very disruptive. The staff turnover was was hard because you're just building those relationships and then suddenly they're gone and you feel you're having to start all over again. That's quite demoralising. I imagine not just for the person living with dementia, but also for your carers and your family. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Ashling. And in terms of receiving supports and so on, were you included in the discussions about those supports? And did somebody consider your needs as well as the needs of your mum or your dad? With respect to my dad's needs, my mum was his main contact and liaison. So everything was done through her. With respect to my mum, I was her primary contact, her primary carer. And it was a tough fight. I had to fight very hard to access resources. They were very often on a one-to-one specific discipline, specific OT, specific physio, specific public health nurse, specific. And then your your public, your psychiatric nursing supports were separate to that. So those teams didn't liaise and talk to each other. So you weren't always considered. It was also always about the patient, as we would say, the person living with the diagnosis. And you had to remind them that the carer also might have needs that would optimise your support. So that that I didn't find um, access to the multidisciplinary teams were very, very, very limited uh, in terms of the overall case management. That was something that I felt was really lacking. Uh, And carer was very much carers needs were an afterthought if they were taken into account at all but that was my experience at that time it's not the same for everybody's case at all Uh, I think it's very important that that carer's insight be brought to the table to the multidisciplinary team. So the carer actually is a proxy case manager for that and cuts out a huge amount of work for those resources, um, but isn't always included in the feedback from them or the progress. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a very valuable resource that currently community services aren't tapping into. Mm, That's an excellent point. So, Ashling, having supported both your parents through dementia... What advice would you have for those supporting someone with dementia? I would have some key advice um, for um, carers and for friends, etc., supporting someone with dementia. The diagnosis is very challenging for both the person who receives the diagnosis and for those family members and friends. Um, so take your take your chance at the outset to have that tough chat and put your advanced planning into place. Um, I've I've encountered so many people who didn't do that. It's a really tough thing to do and we're having to take very critical and vital decisions at a point in time when maybe someone's at a low ebb or there's quite a high level of distress. That's not optimal. Um, It's a challenging time, so information is power. Um, And so apprise yourself. Go to support groups. Go to community groups. Go to campaigning groups and advocacy and Put yourself in an environment where you can ask those tough questions without restrictions, without concerns around you um, and find the optimal path of what you can do as a carer and what works for you, for your circumstances, for the person that you're looking out for. No two dementia cases are the same. Um, 
And the best services I encountered were those delivered by people who were person-centred in their approach to care and not just disease-focused. And so you'll find there'll be some resources that you'll work with well. They'll change in due course. Don't put your energy into it. Look for something else instead or take a step back. Um, And keep knocking on the door. If you're given a flat no to a question or requesting a resource, knock on the door again. Somebody else may have come into post or a window opened somewhere else. That's the lovely serendipity of the carer journey. You meet amazing people along the way, both those delivering services to you and others on a journey, and you can gain from their wisdom. Um, dementia carer, and this is a bit of a tough one, can at times be isolating for, for carers. Um, and many other carers of, of families not with dementia reported how the lockdown uh, was very isolating. And that resonated with dementia carers. Um, it, it's a path that they've tread before. So if you're not in, you can't win. You've got It's all about your self-care. So ally yourself to a support group, to a network of people who walk in your shoes and can guide you and you can feel at home with them. And it's a very humbling experience to go online to an event like this and to hear the feedback and share the stories of others who have that lived experience. And there's an integrity of the advice and an honesty of what they give to you. It's very humbling and it's... um, it's a very rich experience, something I'm exceptionally grateful for to be in those safe hands. It's a great privilege. Take it and good luck. Thank you so much, um, Ashling. And we're immensely grateful to you for sharing that advice, because as you say, from the lived experience, it's it's the best advice you can get. So thank you very much. And I'm going to move over to you now, Mike, and ask you about your journey. Um, your, mo- your mother was diagnosed with vascular dementia 10 years ago, and I know sadly she died two years ago. Can you tell us a little bit about how your mother's diagnosis affected you as a family member and also as a writer? Yeah, it's, uh, you're, act- you're hitting on an area of dementia care, which is really, it's completely neglected. And that is uh, the family unit and how the family unit are and I listened to Ashley talking about getting out there and be advocates and all that. We had a very large family, of, still have, thankfully, of eight people. So when you put eight personalities into a situation of care for one person who we all want to care for, because my mum was an exceptional woman. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly, it's not actually, my journey now is not about my mother at all. It's actually about looking back at my experience as a carer and how best I can deliver the message that would make life better for other families. My mum, she she kind of moved with us. She was really powerful, uh, resisted as as, as was her, as was her personality at times, but she certainly moved with us because you really want to do the right thing mm-hmm. by this amazing woman who looked after you. Suddenly, it's, it's your turn, and and the burden of care is not really um, uh, understood by the powers that be. And for me, as a creator. I see these things as a creator. I see the personalities that's going on. So I react as a writer. Mm-hmm. And I'm currently working on a book of short stories on, on related to dementia, but they're all allegorical stories set in really crazy settings. Uh, one of them is set in a hen house. And it allows me to delve into what happens within, within communities and families at a different level. So I'm using that as a, my creative energy to try and understand, I suppose, in a way, what happened to us and how, how we coped with it because it disintegrated our family. And, and that was a very sad aspect of it. 
So my as a writer, I just want to try and understand and maybe get words out there and advocate for people to understand more about uh, what's involved in dementia care and also to break that horrific stigma that mm. is so much it's so prevalent uh, within our society. And it's not just for dementia, it's for uh, mental illness. It's, it's right across the board. We have got to we've got to break the stigma because if we don't tag, tackle the stigma, then we're not going to be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I discovered in my last couple of years of advocacy work and, and talking about it is people want to talk. Mm-hmm. They Very want true. to talk about their lives and their their experiences and they want to share. But they would, And it's not an ego thing. It's actually we just want to share. And I, I talk to quite a lot of people. People would call me and tell me their stories, you know, because they feel comfortable about it, maybe because I'm t- on TV talking about it. So I think the secret is the talk, because the more we talk, then we then we just get rid of that stigma. Mm, absolutely. And that's a lovely idea that you're writing the book, and we look forward to seeing that. And also, you, you used a lovely word there. You described your, your mother as powerful. That was a really lovely description. Mm. Of her. She was powerful. She sounds amazing. Yeah, she reared eight of us, and, yeah. and, and she reared my father. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely. And, it's... Yeah, and we had my granny who lived with us for a long time. She was an amazing woman. She was a... Uh, She's she's a great soul and she had, she's a great heart, a very religious person, dedicated. But she also was a, com- a community carer, you know. Mm. And she would. She, we, it was natural for us to be carers because we got it from my mum, mm-hmm. and we've been kind of playing, performing music in in care facilities since we were children. Right. So we're, it's no stranger for us to walk into a, a, a hospital setting or, or a care home to to entertain people and connect. Um, even even as kids, my dad ran a swimming pool and uh, he was p- quite powerful as well. He, we used to teach the, the, the kids with Down syndrome uh, and with learning difficulties. So, so we've always been constantly in situations where people need care and understanding. Yeah. And I think that's down to my mum. So for us to return the compliment was, was, our, was our great privilege, really. Mm-hmm. That's, I always thought it was a great privilege to, to look after like we did. And we certainly did. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. That's really lovely. Um, And Mike, you're now an Atlantic Fellow in Brain Equity with the Global Brain Health Institute at Trinity College in Dublin. This is a new chapter for you. So along with your long and successful career as a singer, songwriter, musician, member of Stockton's Wing, author, and I understand you're also a cook. Can you tell us how did you get here? Believe it or not, it all started in this very room. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe when I walked into this room. This is, this is the old Lombard Street Studios. And this was like the Tin Pan Alley of Irish music here, this entire building, because the building housed the studio and it also housed several managers, uh, Johnny Logan's managers, all, the, all the, the, the country and Western stars, the country and Irish stars, the... Uh, ballad singers, Paddy Riley, you name it, the, Jim McCann, we all came in here for our meetings and our, to get our, our diaries and send us off on the road. And we recorded it here. I recorded my first ever song in this studio in, in 1979, a song called Take a Chance, which was the title track of an album we did with Stockton's Wing. And then I recorded our hit single, Beautiful Affair, here. Uh, the producer, PJ Curtis, reckons we spent something like around 35 hours in here recording wow. uh, with very little breaks because was, there, was, there was very little money around and Deirdre, who used to run the, the studio here, um, she used to give us special prices if we, st- if we stayed at night. <laughs> so, 
she looked after. So it's a real privilege. I've come like I feel like today I've come a full full oh, circle. That's amazing. And it's because of GBHI in a way as well, and my mum because I'm doing GBHI because it's it's the next stage of my journey uh, dealing with with uh, dementia. Mm. I'm in, I'm in as a creator because I really believe the creative arts are mm. a powerful tool. Absolutely. And we need to get that word out. Um, it's it's a push constantly with with science t- because. The science love to evaluate everything. And, you know, if they give you a pill, they need to evaluate it and prove that this is what it is. Where you can't evaluate what happens when you sing a song. But I can. Because I I used to evaluate it every time I'd sing to my mum. I'd evaluate this amazing connection I'd have with her eyes. And and to me, that's all the evaluation I need. So I drive the scientists crazy inside GPHI. (laughs) And... uh, but they're coming across to me. I think there's a bridge there between science and creativity. And we need to cross that bridge and meet in the middle and, and work because th- there's so much research uh, going on about the creative arts and how it, it helps people with dementia, with, uh, in mental illness, uh, all sorts of brain uh, disease areas that we uh, acquire brain injury is another one. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about it. The creative arts helps Mm-hmm. these people right through it. So you mentioned there about, you know, obviously you talked about the role of creative arts and about the power of music and so on. And um, so I know you do have your guitar with you. So um, I think you're going to sing a song for us, are you? And, I'd, I'd love to sing a song. And, and maybe you'd introduce the song. And I know this song has been inspired by your mum. So maybe you'd tell yeah. us a little bit about it. So I had this idea that my mum, my mum's life was like that of a river. That, that it started on high in mountain as a kind of a stream and, and made its way down into the valleys and, and nurtured as it went along on her journey t- to the ocean. And I use images like the, the, the oak tree for the tough times that, that you have to get around and, and passing the weeping willows. And, and she was a great lover of nature. So, and I felt that it was time that she, could, she should really get t- to the ocean. And we wanted to be all to be there with her on the journey and make sure we were there at that moment as well. And there was a, a verse in a song, a part of the song where I said, go now, your time here is done. And I felt so guilty about that for so long. And I, I, I rummaged around my head, should I really include this? Was it not? But in fact, I t- felt it had to be because we all feel this, you know. And so I left it in the song and then we recorded it with the Forget-Me-Nots and they had a hit single and we had a video call and it was a powerful moment. Great to work with, with the guys there just, and I continue to work with them. A river rolls on to the sea Far away from the high mountain stream To that place where you long to be A river rolls onto the sea Down through the hills and the glade You roll on through sunshine and rain Round the oak and the willow you came Even the birds sing your name They're singing this song for you now In their hearts you forever live on and on Yeah, they sing of your grace and your joy As you gently go 
rolling by With a tear and a smile Falls to the sea by the shoreline, ocean breeze. It's there you will set your heart free, where the river falls to the sea. So go now, your time here is done. Time to stop lingering on and on. Yeah, you'll still feel the soft ocean breeze, where the river it falls to the sea. Where you long to be now, so roll on, yeah, roll on, roll on, roll on, and soon we'll be with you there to breathe in the salt and the air. Remember the moments we shared. So go, set your sail and sail away. Yes, sail away, sail away, sail away. So go now, your time here is done. Stop lingering on and on. Yeah, we we'll still feel the soft ocean breeze where the river it falls to the sea. Cause we're singing this song for you now. In our hearts, you forever live on and on. Yeah, we sing of your grace and your joy as you gently go. Rolling by with that tear and that smile, say roll on by, yeah, roll on. Cause a river rolls on to the sea, a river rolls on to the sea. River rolls on to the sea, and a river falls to the sea. Wow, that was beautiful. That was great. Thank you. So, Mike, for carers listening to the podcast who may not be able to get out to events, what is your advice about using music to support their loved ones with dementia? Oh, there's so many um, angles you can take. A great one is, is setting up your own um, radio show, you know, in in the room, like picking the favourite songs and and actually acting out a radio show. People who would have been involved in, in would know people like Larry Gogan from the old days. Is, is Setting up something like that is really, really cool and it doesn't involve any playing. So if people, not, not everybody plays music. All the creative arts, drawing, you know, no matter what you do, because there's an, it's an area of the brain that doesn't go until the very end, until, the, until we all leave this, or sh- the shores here. Your creative brain stays with you all the way through and it responds 
to, to that kind of stimulation. So, and that's where you connect with the people. So whatever artistic endeavor you feel it, it connects you to your, your people as a carer, then you should pursue it because like my own mother-in-law, I, she was kind of, she got a bit quiet in herself once there last year and I just turned to her and I said in Irish and I'd, I'm only learning Irish again. I said, come and talk to out of the blue and she started talking Irish. And we talk Irish every day now. We have a bit of a conversation about Irish and it's a bit of crack. So we're both kind of getting ourselves worked up with, with the Irish language again, which is really fun. So I think whatever you think creatively will work you're going to have an, an, an audience ready and waiting. You know, your, your, your family member will be delighted to be involved. That's lovely mm. advice. And actually, Ashling had mentioned earlier about her mum's love of art and how that stayed mm. even in the, the uh, later years of your mum's life. She was really comforted by that. And she would just um, and she would engage with her eyes. You know, she reached a point where she wasn't speaking and she would engage with her eyes. And you knew that she was in that moment. It was about being in that moment. Mm. Um, and the same with my dad. Uh, he was having a distressed time. You would just put on some of his beloved music. And he, he still had full um, voice, um, but he'd be silent. And then he'd turn around and say, well, I prefer Baron Boehm's version of that compared to that thing. Or, you know, give me joy to run funk any day. So he would tap into parts of the brain that were still so yeah. vibrant and active. Yeah. And that was his gorgeous treasure trove in memory lane. And that was a really humbling and beautifully exciting thing to observe because you knew that he was exquisitely happy at that moment yeah. in time. He was peaceful. That was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I think it's what they call it that, 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 that we've got so much cognitive reserve that we build up over the years from different aspects of, of what we will go through in life and it's, music has such a, a role in our lives it, our emotions everything we do you know is related to some musical tune or mm -hmm. you know a gig or whatever you do or a, a nice poem so I think it's, it's all in there we just need to tap into it mm -hmm. It's great. It's it's fantastic advice. And thank you for sharing your story with us, Mike, and, and about your, your mother. She must be so looking down and so proud of you. And, you know, as you say now, as a, a an Atlantic fellow with the Global Brain Health Institute, I wish you well with the, your work with them. Thank you. So very thank much. you for joining us today. And Kathleen, I'm going to move over to you now. And Kathleen is our expert here today because we in the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland consider that people with the lived experience are the ultimate experts. So Kathleen, you were diagnosed with Lewy body dementia in 2021 and you've since joined the Irish Dementia Working Group, supported by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Can you tell me why you wanted to get involved in advocacy work? First of all, it took the journey for me to be diagnosed was quite a long one. Maybe three years doesn't seem that long, but it does when it's happening to you. And, like, I, I was shocked. Uh, I, I don't know why. I thought it was cancer of the brain I might have had. But when they tell you that it's Lewy body dementia, you're totally confused because there's a very clear path to go with if it was cancer. With Lewy dementia, you know, some people never even heard the word. So that was extremely difficult. And I made a decision there and then that, you know what, I'm not going to let this get me, it won't get me. And that's when I decided that, like, of course I had my tears and everything else, but I'm not going to allow people to say, um, our God lover. I hate that word, our God lover. It's like, 
it's patting you on the head and saying, move on there now, you're, you're grand. So when I came out of hospital, um, when I felt stronger in myself, I rang the um, helpline for the um, Alzheimer's. And, you know, I never looked back from the day that I made that phone call. I remember, I remember making the call and I remember thinking, this is not me, I don't ring helplines. Somebody rings me normally and asks me how would they cope with this. But for me, it was like I'm on the other end and I was conscious of it. And there was a girl, um, I just can't think of her name, but I do think of her. She let me talk, first of all, for about 40 minutes. And she said to me, do you know what she said? You'd make a great one for advocacy in with the Alzheimer's. And I'm going to put you in touch with Saoirse Kelly. But it was the people that actually wanted to know about what Lewy Bodies was. That's the moment when I said, I'm going to follow through what I thought in the first time. I'm going to make this work for me. And it gave me a total distraction from, I suppose, feeling sorry for myself in one way. And in another way, it was I was always very active in work. And the idea that the biggest, one of the biggest disappointments for me is I find it extremely hard to write. Um, I know it in my head, mm. but I can't get, I, and I had um, certificates for writing. Um, I had a lovely handwrite, and if you look at mine, I don't believe it's me. Sometimes that I was actually sitting down and writing out maybe some notes about something. It just doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. No matter, but yet in my head, I know exactly what I want to say. But And, and that makes it even more difficult, um, frustrating more than difficult, mm-hmm. because I, I, was, I don't know where I was, but they asked me to sign my name. And I looked, I took the pen and I thought, right, let's write my name. But my hand just wouldn't write. And, you know, th- that day he said, I'll just put an X. And I thought, oh, my God, I might come to that. But that was part of me, again, being, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has those kind of problems. Yes. And that brought back to the one, why did I actually decide to to join the group? Um, to try and use the, the, the society, the Alzheimer's Society, to try and let them help me, because obviously I had no idea. I I know. I mean, I've often, I'd heard of it. I never heard of Lewy bodies, and quite honestly, I don't think anyone has. Very few people know. I got a procedure done in hospital there about a month ago, and I said to the the nurse, and I actually think this was very funny. I don't know why. I said to the nurse, um, I was going down for the anaesthetic, and I said, now if I come out of this and I'm okay and I'm all, or I get aggressive, um, please remember that I have Lewy bodies. And the nurse said, what is Lewy body? And it definitely didn't fill me full of confidence when I went down. I thought, oh, my God. But all the more reason why there are so many things like people really need to know. Yeah. And it keeps me going. 
Well, that's fantastic, Kathleen, and so generous of you to use your time to do that. So speaking out, as you say, and helping to raise awareness of Lewy body dementia. So, Kathleen, what advice would you give to other people living with dementia or their families about how to find and access supports and services? Um, can I first just say, Eddie, isn't it? Mike. Mike, sorry. Your, your comment on the dynamics of families um, I'm not married and my sister's not married, so we live together and my brother calls in and out all of the time. But when we tried to get them to actually take our... our we were three siblings, um, but nobody seemed to take that. It was all daughters looking after mother, mothers looking after father, fathers looking after wife. It just what you said there, it's it's just so frustrating to think that in this day and age, f- families are made up of all sorts of things mm-hmm. and yet the medical th- teams haven't worked that out. Okay, that's so, a really interesting point. Um, but if I was to advise anybody, like, you know, not everybody would be like me, but at the end of it all, I think a social worker, if you can get a good social worker, they do the work. But yet there's an awful stigma in this country about telling somebody, I have a, I, I'm looking for a social worker. It's almost like uh, there's something mad going on in that family and they need somebody to... And it's not like that. They do the work. You tell them what you'd like. The other thing is um, accepting help, right? If you're not willing to do and take the help... There's no point in going on because the help is out there and it can be difficult and it can be really difficult when, like, I have a care package which uh, a carer comes in and gives me a shower in the morning and does my hair or they'll do anything they need. So just to know that I'm safe. Yeah. Okay. So if you'd have told me two years ago I would allow that, I would have said absolutely not. But they are a source. And, and it's that other contact that they listen. If if life has changed, which it has for me, there's only really one way you've got to do is accept it. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people that are willing to accept what's going on. And they will help you, but you have to let them. Okay. And, and that, for me... Um, joining the 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 working the working group. Sorry, I get mixed up with no, my you're words. You're okay, Kathleen. It's the Irish Dementia Working group. group. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that for me has been a lifesaver. Great. I apart from like getting out, I'm helped in that respect. Um, Bernadette, my sister, has now met uh, Sosha and. The, the, the people and she knows that I'm well, being well looked after so she doesn't have that fear anymore um, well she probably does but she doesn't tell me but it, <laughs> it definitely um, it, stay positive okay that's anyone that's been diagnosed with dementia stay as positive as you can for as long as you can and I've, there was there's a very interesting case at the moment going on about dementia and somebody this poor man wants his leg and the, 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 the doctors want it and they, and to be fair they feel it's in the best interest 
But because he has dementia, he had to take it to the high court. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it, it he, this man very definitely feels, I don't want this to happen. Mm-hmm. So you, if you stay strong, you will actually get there. And, yeah. you know, that, that's I, all I can say. That's great advice, Kathleen. And and as you said about you joining the Irish Dementia Working Group, it gave you another outlet. It meant that you were meeting people, people who understood the journey you were on, etc. So that's really lovely advice. And you mentioned as well, Kathleen, the uh, helpline at the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. So I think this is a good time for me to give that number, which is 1-800-341-341. Absolutely. You'll never look back. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Kathleen. And I think that's a lovely point to stop on because I know we've run out of time. But I'd really like to thank you all very much, Ashling, Mike and Kathleen. Thank you so much for your time today. You so generously giving your time and we really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. This podcast series is kindly sponsored by Hidden Hearing. And we are very grateful for their support so that the lived experience of caring for someone with dementia is heard. To learn more about their work, please visit hiddenhearing.ie.